You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. This is Live from the Table, the official podcast of New York's world-famous Comedy Cellar, coming at you on Sirius XM Raw Dog 99. And on the Ridecast Podcast Network, Dan Natterman speaking. And with us, Noam Dwarman, the owner of the world-famous Comedy Cellar, Periel, has a family matter to attend to. She may be joining us later. We hope to see her. And we have with us Al Martin, comedy legend. Al started off as a touring headliner until opening up the New York Comedy Club in 1988 while still doing comedy, also became a, uh, if you will, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a sponsor of young up-and-coming comics, and is subsequently, uh, he has purchased two other clubs. He now owns the Greenwich Village Comedy Club as well as the Broadway Comedy Club. Please welcome Al Martin. Hello, everybody. That was Dan. a reasonable introduction. I had to do it on the fly. No, everybody. Hello. How are you, Al? Okay. Very, very busy. <laughs> Why are you so busy? No, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> and Al's, Al's also the, uh, the writer of a new book, I Did It on a Dare, which chronicles his foray into the world of comedy club ownership. And we will discuss that. Yes. So... Noam. Yeah. Uh, what's on your mind? I know you wanted to discuss the, Al's uh, book with him. Yeah, I want to hear about Al's book. I, 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 didn't know, I didn't know someone like us could write a book. Yes, yes. Well, you could definitely write a great book, for sure. Uh, let's face it, I didn't have a lot to do. I'm so used to working every day and being involved in nonsense every day. And, you know, all of a sudden, uh, this nightmare occurred and I uh, had time on my hands. And I took uh, 25, 30 years of notes and put it to paper and uh, got this thing published. So, first of all, you keep, you keep notes? Well, you know, <laughs> in my brain. <laughs> so, so, tell us about it. So, so, I mean, well, you know, there's a chapter on the comedy cellar. Our no, no. whole thing. Uh, when our, our fight? Yes. Is there an apology there? I, I'd like to read it. <laughs> you know what? I do feel very bad for it. I'm and, uh, kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we have a chapter on that and all sorts of goodies in there. And is this is available at Amazon.com? Amazon.com, correct. Uh, so, you so know, I, was I was supposed to hit some bookstores with it and autograph signings and, at the clubs, but we're not open. So, you know, can't do anything on that end. So tell us, like, what, what, you know, like, give us a couple, a couple of anecdotes. So you, you know, people about, always ask me, like, for, people always ask me for, like, funny stories about people when they're starting out and stuff like that. I can never think of anything, nothing. But uh, you must have something. Well, you know, it all uh, really happened on a dare for me. Um, I was dating a girl that was doing some stand-up comedy at the time. I never had any interest other than taking dates to comedy clubs when I first. Uh, you know, when I was younger. And then this girl told me that she was doing an open mic at a club. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll go in Brooklyn. And uh, she was on stage. 
And I had to endure, uh, you know, seven minutes of an open mic uh, for her and two hours of other open micers till they got to her. And it was a disaster for me, <laughs> you know. I, I might have even been traumatized from it. And uh, <laughs> later on, she says to me, as women are apt to do, uh, how, how did I do, you know? How was I? And I kept telling her, you were great, you were funny, uh, you know, anything to get her off my back from nagging me with the question. And then after the 20th time of her asking me, I finally told her, you know, you suck. You're horrible. Like, it's, it's hard to listen to. And, you know, I couldn't, take, I couldn't take her asking me about it. And then we got into a 15-minute argument where we went back and forth. And she said, you know, you're pretty funny. Why don't you get on the stage, Big Mouth? And she dared me. And a week later, I got on stage. And uh, it was right around the time, Noam and Dan, that uh, Andrew Dice Clay walked into the comedy club to run through his uh, HBO special that he was doing, I think, in 89. And uh, I got bumped at about uh, 1230, 1130 in the at night. And he did 45 minutes. He blew the room out. The MC introduces me, forgets my name, just said some fat kid. Uh, wants to go up on stage and do some time. And um, I went up and I, I just show you how delusional I was. I decided on the spur of the moment, since Dice came in, this is my first time ever on stage. I decided I'm going to change my entire act and do all dirty stuff with some <laughs> kind of delusion <laughs> that, that Dice is going to take me on the road as an opening act. <laughs> and oh of God. course I've, yeah, of course, I bombed about as bad as a person could bomb on stage, which served me later on because I was able to identify with some of the delusional thoughts that comics have when they come into my club and, and want to perform uh, on the nine o'clock Saturday show. You know, oh, I, I, uh, I, you know, thought that I would uh, be a touring headliner within a couple of years. And I know I speak to young comics and they're uh, you know, that are a year in and they, they all think the same thing. Pretty much everybody, when they start out, thinks it's going to be a much quicker uh, path than it is. That's sort of um, universal, I think, amongst people starting out is, is a, is a, is a uh, warped sense of the, uh, the length of the process. Yeah, but I mean, Perielle is back with us. I just want to real quickly. Perielle, are you back for good? I mean, we'll see. All right. Well, she has some family issues, but hopefully all is well. Uh, Al, you were saying? Yeah, I was going to say, it's, uh, it's along the lines, I always tell comics, you know, that want to go up right away, that think they're that funny. I said, you know, Derek Jeter didn't become Derek Jeter overnight, you know, with one at bat. You know, he had to go to uh, Little Leagues and he had to throw balls with his dad seven days a week while other people were having fun. And, you know, the minor leagues and college ball and whatever he did to become Derek Jeter, same thing here become a successful comic and i know dan because you spent a lot of time at new york comedy club starting out it's a it's a nightly process of, of going up and bombing and going up and bombing till you get to play a room like the comedy cellar you know that could take years well here's the thing though sometimes at the in the early days for me and for many other people we brought our friends to come see us and we, yes. we did kill oftentimes even at the beginning so we had that sense that Oh well, we're 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 uh, you know good enough, but that was mostly because the audience was filled with either our friends or other uh, new comedians' friends who were very warm and receptive to almost anything we had to say. So uh, that that helped to give us a uh, 
skewed sense of reality as well. Yeah, one of the things we talk about in the book is, you know, basically the beginner of the bringer show, you know, and how that pretty much started in, in my room, uh, you know, for better or worse, you know, and uh, basically how that happened, I had a few comics talking to me at the bar one night, uh, the early 1990s, maybe around 1990, and they said to me, Al, um, how, how do we get on stage here? And I said, well, you know, at that time, the lineup was, you know, Bill Hicks and Brett Butler and Liz Winstead and, you know, Mike Royce and guys like that. And I said, you're, you're just not ready to get on that nine o'clock show. And basically one of them said, well, what if we took an earlier time spot and, you know, did a show and, and, and brought our own audience and, you know, a light went off in my head, you know, because at that time, my competition was really the improv, the comic strip, danger fields. I was sort of the new kid on the block and I had to come up with an idea as to how I get people into this room as opposed to them going to the normal rooms that they're going to. And it, it, it turned out to be a, a great, you know, uh, a great side hustle, I guess, the new talent show. Well, the new talent show, you know, I mean, it, it gets, um a bad reputation sometimes because people feel, well, why should I bring my own audience? But it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's a win-win. The club gets an audience and the comic gets people to perform in front of that he never would have gotten otherwise. Right. Uh, there are, there are some people that might exploit it uh, and do it unfairly and, and tell comics, you got to bring 30 people and, you know, uh, right. Well, and take advantage, but but you know if if done properly, it's um, and done honestly. I think it's it's appropriate and win win. It's a tool, you know, uh, for and a lot of comedies tools, you know. But uh, it's a tool. I tell comics when they start out. Listen, if you can't bring, you can't bring. Then just go through the traditional ways of either interning or open mics and getting good enough at open mics to make friends that eventually are doing things or, you know, running a little open mic of your own and trading off spots. But if you work in, a, in, a, in an office or a law firm or a medical office and you've got friends that want to see you, then it's definitely another tool. And as you say, it's a win-win. Somebody can get up on stage and, and bring their friends. And yes, and you're right, there is a lot of exploitation. Some of the things I've always hated about New Talent Show is, when you're the one person bringing, you know, 90% of the audience and they hold you for last when people are ordering their checks, that's very exploitive and very unfair, you know, and I make sure we, we don't do that if at all possible. And, and, you know, other things like cutting the time because they're the last act up and, you know, the manager wants to go home or somebody wants to go home. So yeah, there, there can be an exploitive element to it. Uh, but, you know, we've always tried to be fair with it and, and offer other stuff like uh, to the comedians that are doing those shows that are beneficial to them. Well, um, first of all, um, I have a lot of respect for you, Al. Uh, and, and I, I want to put it the right way without it seeming like a backhanded compliment because it's, it's not a backhanded compliment at all. Um, sure. What's that? Well, no, no, I'm oh. giving you the best shot. Oh, no, because, because <laughs> you, you, you run your club um, and you're a survivor, I think is, is uh, the, the best way to put it. And, and um, 
that's that's a that's a um something to take a lot of pride in people people who've never done it truly don't understand it's so easy they sit back they criticize decisions why you do it this way why you do it that way you know whatever it is that you're doing i know you used to, you used to get flack for like uh, how you made food in the old club whatever it was <laughs> you know, with the with the george foreman grill or what, yes know. the famous george foreman grill whatever it was and, and i never and i and you don't know this but i i might have told you this one time but I, and i used to push back at the comedians when they would kind of you know chuckle about that and i would say basically say like you know yeah but look at all the guys who fucking went out of business i mean one after another after another and al doesn't he's in there and he's making a living and he's staying open and he and he grows and um you guys may bitch and moan about this or that but you're you're all going to work there and um you know, you know, you've had it in, in, in many ways much tougher than we've had it at the Comedy Cellar. And you and I think you make you make a good living and you um, you're you're established and you and you're like I said, you're a survivor. And I and I really honestly, I I despite our, the, the problems that we had, um, I do very much respect your talent and ability. Thank uh, you. That's honest. Thank you. you know, it's it's. Um... Yes, of course, we have the George Foreman Grill uh, uh, at that time. You know, one of the things, uh, Noam, is that, you know, a lot of clubs that you hear about opening uh, in the modern era all seem to have partners, lots of partners, you know. And it's very easy when you have partners to really piss a lot of money into an operation and having this fancy thing and that fancy thing and, and, you know, uh, golden bathrooms and, you know, um, you know, and, you know, basically I started as a comic and I sort of stumbled into running a room that whole story's in the book, but, you know, I never really had, uh, into the, you know, at least 10 years of owning a club, then is when I started, you know, getting more and more comfortable financially. But, you know, in the early years, especially when I lost my first room and had to rebuild a whole new room with my own money, you know, I, you know, didn't have the money to spend $30,000 on an Ansel system for the kitchen and, and all that sort of thing. So I had to go, you know, innovative and, and do the George Foreman grill. And the funny thing is, we came out with some great wings on that thing, you know, and, yeah. and, and yeah, the comics are going to laugh about it. And I take a ribbing for it, but yeah, I wear it proudly. It, it, it paid, it paid for my kids' colleges and it, it paid for my life. So like you said, and uh, I just, I roll with it now. I, I mean, and I'm not going to say that in those years I didn't get sensitive about it, you know, um, I remember a time. Uh, I remember a time before all of that when someone said to me, "Hey, uh, you know, um, the comics will come into my room and talk about Silver Friedman, and you know, uh, at the Improv and trash talk her and Lucian Hold and trash talk him." And I said to a comic one day, like, you know, they're all talking about these people. You know, they're joking about them, but you know, when I don't, does anybody ever talk about me? And he said stay under the radar. It's the best thing in the world. You don't want anybody talking about you. And then as the years went on and I opened up Broadway and, you know, opened up a club in Florida and all that, uh, all of a sudden I was the guy with the radar with the initial comedy coalition when it was comedy based. 
Um, and then I became a target, and I regretted then saying. Wait, tell, tell the listeners what what that what you're referring to with the Comedy Coalition and the target. Sure. So the uh, early in the early 2000s, the comics had decided that they were not getting paid enough money, uh, and they wanted a raise. And I, if I remember correctly, at the time we might have been paying them fifty or sixty dollars a set. And they wanted to go to $100 a set, I think, if I remember correctly. And um, there were a couple of clubs uh, that kind of did it uh, right away and, and said, yes, we'll do it. And I sort of held out uh, because, you know, uh, the way I calculate things, if I'm giving someone an extra $20 a set and I've got, you know, five or six comics on a show, and I'm doing that five, seven nights a week, all of a sudden, you know, 20 bucks is, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year for me. And that's coming out of my pocket because at that time, you know, one of the reasons I, I was thinking was that was a time when we were doing a lot of comp admissions. And, you know, so I couldn't really raise the admission price much. I think I had just raised it at the time. Our drink prices were sort of, maxed out uh, at the time. So where am I getting this 50 or 60,000? It's coming out of my pocket. So I tried to fight that, you know, uh, as much as I could, not with any dislike for the comics, you know, and I had always grown up um, in, in the ensuing years with the thought that, you know, New York City clubs were not necessarily to make a living but were to learn your craft so you got good enough to either get a sitcom or write on a sitcom or, you know, go out on the road and do, you know, bigger venues where you make your money. So I was sort of a little old school in that thinking. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, I think it cost me popularity for a while with comedians. And, um, you know, uh, it was a rough time, uh, you know, mentally because I had been a comic. And I understood to some extent where they were coming from, but I was at that time in a little bit of, I just built out Broadway at that time, I think. We opened, we had opened at the, as the improv, um, we had secured the rights to the name from Silver. And um, that was a funny story in itself. So, uh, and I was, you know, I just built out the room and uh, things were a little tight financially at that time. Yeah, I, I think people are entirely too judgmental. I mean, you know, for the record, the comedy seller, I think, has always paid the most, right? We, we've always paid the most. We've always been able to. And that's, and that's been our strategy. We, we pay the most, and we, and we, we don't comp admissions, uh, and, and that's been our formula, right? But, um, uh, you know, in business, if you're dishonorable, if you cheat somebody, if you don't pay after you promise to pay, things like this, and somebody has a right to, to criticize your practices. But if you say, listen, I'll pay you X, and somebody accepts, you didn't twist their arm. You know, it's like, it's like listen. Right, I, right. Um, but, but people also have the right to say, but we would want, I mean, but you do agree that people have the right to get together and decide in a union format uh, that we want Y instead of X, or yeah, do not of course, agree. With of course, you have the right. What I'm sure. saying is that that rather than judge Al as somehow a bad person because he didn't want to pay, I never understood that. Like he doesn't want it, so you know what? Don't go play his club, or do play his club. You know, when you when he asks you to perform at his club, if you say no, 
he doesn't say you're a shithead because you refuse to play at his club. Like, like, you know, it's an even exchange. And, and um, people are entirely too judgmental of other people in this regard. And having said that, like I said, we, we try to pay the most. But, if, but let me tell you something. If it meant um, sending my kids to college, of course I would lower the pay. Of course, you know, of course I would. So right at that time, it was very rough. And I'll I'll go out on a limb here and say that I think there are two different generations of attitude towards Al Martin. Now that I you know I like to analyze things, and I have way too much time on my hands now. And as I was writing the book, I started thinking about it. But there's a group of comics, I guess, from the early '90s, uh, all you know, into the maybe early 2000s in that area that have one view of me. And then there are comics from the later years that completely have a different view. And because of things being a little more comfortable for me, we were able to go with the flow on certain things and, and, and you know, pay the amounts that we should be paying or could be paying. And, and you know, also, I, 20 years of therapy probably helped. I don't, I don't hold anger like I used to. I don't um, keep grudges, uh, which is, you know, uh, very prevalent in our business. You know, I, I, I let go of a lot of things. So I That's became good. a little bit of a different person. Yeah, there is one thing that goes on. I don't understand. I, God forbid, I don't want to uh, speak incorrectly about anybody. But UCB, even though I've never been there, am I correct? They weren't paying anything. Is that right? Uh, that's what I heard, and they that, had big money behind them, right? Right, and and they um, that's so, that's that's a little uh, worthy of criticism, maybe. You know, I don't know the details, but well, from my perspective, it is because not only were they not paying, but they had a sterling reputation within the community of comedians. So I'm saying to myself, okay, some people have a right to, you know aim a, a bullet towards me for certain things, but I did pay, you know, and, and, you know, other than your venues, um, I pay probably pretty close to what everybody else is paying. You know, sometimes I don't pay the MC as much, but that's my own personal opinion on, on how I run things. But, um, you know, uh, I don't think I'm far off the other clubs and I might be even a few bucks more than the others. And, and, and you're paying a lot of money out of the drinks. Anyway, I don't want to get too in the weeds. By the way, are I, you- Can I say something? Yeah. Sure. Oh, no, I'm so upset. Oh no, sure. I mean, as somebody who, you know, started out in this industry not so long ago, um, something that you just said out really resonates, which is the opportunity to get on stage um, at a club in New York for, um, is a really big deal. So that makes sense to me. I mean, I understand that somebody who's been performing for 20 years, you know, probably has a different opinion about that. Um, but there, there is something to be said for that, I think. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I, go ahead. You're yeah, talking about so, the, uh, the new talent shows, uh, Perio? I think just in general, people who aren't like super well-known and who aren't, you know, traveling around the country, I mean, making a lot of money. I think the opportunity to get on stage at like a real place 
in the city is a big deal. And to be able to like hone their craft and work a room and start to build a career. Um, and, also, and also occasional sex with wait staff. Oh, I never did that. But, but I never, 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 never did. You I, never, mean, I think that comedians, uh, you know, well, maybe once I did. <laughs> they, they, they uh, I mean, there is such a thing as kind of a fairness, you know, uh, and, um, but the factors are, first of all, like in our rooms, we have one room that holds over 200 people. So, you know, of course we're able to pay more, right? We were sold out. It's like, and, and we're getting cover charge on every ticket. So first question is how many seats, how much are they bringing? Second question is, do you, are you part of the draw? And you're right, Perry. if you're just, you know, just, just starting out, then you have nothing to do really with the fact that people are coming into the club. That's, that's right. basically 100% the, the product of the labor of the owner. So you, you, you have to, lower your expectations there. Um, and I, but I've never gotten the feeling, as a matter of fact, I've never quite understood how Al making money. I mean, do, do you, are you really on top of like the, the number of ounces that go into your drinks and the liquor inventory? I mean, this is like to make yeah. the bar business, which is, I'm really bad at that. Um, I mean, for people who don't know, like it's a game of inches. Like when, when you are trying to make money off alcohol and not cover charge, Every drop of alcohol adds up over the course of the year to your, you know, 30 grand and, and people stealing. I mean, it's, it's a nightmare business, really. We just you, talk about, you know about all that stuff? Who, me? Yeah. Yes. That's, you know, that, that's actually my gig in the place. I, I'll tell you, in the early days, we used to use, and we still do, uh, uh, although at Broadway, we do have a dish a dishwashing uh, unit now, but in the early days, I used to be the one personally to take the inventory in my business. And, and not only that, I used to take inventory two ways. I, I would do a physical inventory of the liquor and, and always strive to reach a certain percentage of the liquor to the sales of the liquor. But what I was really doing, people would laugh at me, and I'll give away a little Al Martin secret, but at the time, I used to calculate how many sleeves of plastic cups into a case and how many cases I ordered a week versus how many drinks I sold a week. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm probably blowing your mind now <laughs> trying to figure out the math on this, but, you know, each drink was X amount of ounces. Uh, how many drinks was I getting out of a case of cups? Right. And and I kind of learned that because in an earlier lifetime, before I got into comedy, uh, I used to do lie detector tests. I was a polygraphist. And That's hilarious. one of my biggest clients was Lowe's movie theaters. And Lowe's movie theaters would take their inventory on the cups that they sold of like if they started the week with 20 cases of let's say uh, a thousand cases uh, of uh, cups they started the week with 20,000 then they would subtract how many cups were left at the end of the week and then how many and compare it versus the drinks that they sold and they should have some kind of gross figure as to what they should be making now one of the things i learned in one of the big big scams in the movie business uh, was that in between shows, ushers would run around the room, pick up ah. the em 
and it use them again to steal it. That's right. They would clean them, reuse them, and that was free money. Right. So, you know. Well, so, so let me tell you. So what you're telling me doesn't surprise me because, and this is really why I respect you. Because, I, I mean, I, I, I didn't know your, the details and I don't know all the details, but, but I worked backwards knowing enough about the business that the only way you could be doing what you're doing is by sweating a lot of little details. And I, I don't have the personality to be good at that. It's not, and, and maybe because of that, I shaped my business in a different way, but you're, you're essentially, you know, you can have a store that has a, a that like a deli that smells, sells small ticket items and, and um, makes a small margin on everyone. You have a store that makes a like a selling cars, a big ticket item. You need to maybe sell one car a day, right? And and that's an exaggeration. But we're I'm I'm trying to sell comedy as a big ticket item. We we get a cover charge, and the cover charge is is pow. I mean that that's real money, a cover charge, right? And but but you're doing the same thing in a small ticket item way. A drink here, a drink there, a drink here, get him in, get him out, and 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 it has to add up to, to what I and that is a much more impressive accomplishment, I'm telling you, than anything that I've ever done. And people do not understand. They just don't understand how few people could pull that rabbit out of a hat as you're doing. It's very tough. And we were very talking just last, just last night. I was talking with some people about uh, how you don't get robbed more because you're, you spend a lot of time not at the club. And I just, I just, uh, I said, I credited Liz Ferriati. I said, well, he's got a manager there that, that that's very uh, good and keeps an eye on everything. But I don't know if that's true. I mean, I mean we, robbed by the bartenders? Robbed by whomever. I mean, oh, you're, never, you're never there. Not oh, never. We're closed for COVID, for Christ's sake. I know, but even when, when you're open, you no, know. I, I, listen, first of all, I spent years, years and years and years of being there all the time. I mean, all the time. Now the Liz is there, I'm there less. But you no, know, we, have, we have pretty good systems, but the, you know, there's, First of all, there's not that much cash around anymore, so it's much easier. Oh, yeah, that's a big thing. I'll tell you an interesting thing. I probably spend almost the entire winter in Florida uh, for the last three years. And, you know, those were three great years, uh, bottom line-wise. And because of a number of things, one, there is less cash. There's very little cash uh, for people to take. And, you know, if I was at the club personally, you know, I can – only be at one place at one time. There's a lot of times on a Saturday night, I'll be in my place and I'll turn on the cameras and I could be at, you know, 16 or 17 or 18 different locations at one time watching what's going on in two separate, you know, venues. So if there's anything like, I literally on certain nights- Don't get like, caught masturbating. <laughs> yeah, right, that's, that's true. But on a, on a, Tuesday night or Wednesday night, you know, I'll literally sit down at the cameras and watch my box office from like eight to nine o'clock. I count the heads coming into one room. I count the heads going into the other with the old fashioned pen and paper and doing hash marks. And I'll, uh, you know, and I'll say, okay, uh, in the downstairs room, there's 76 people. Then I'll call in at nine 30 and I'll ask, Hey, what's the count? You know? And, it's usually between, you know, 74 and so, you know, there are people that go in, they don't like what's there, they leave or whatever. But, you know, this is the kind of detail you talk about that I kind of do. And I've done this at sitting at poker tables in casinos. I actually sit there and, and count bodies coming in, you know, and yeah. that 
I don't know if I can ever really change. That's just my brain. Our listeners uh, are sizing this up with, as um, Jews, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, you know yeah. they're not completely wrong. So listen, what do you think about um, the COVID stuff? So behind the scenes, I, we can talk about this. There's a there's a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit that's going to go on. Can I talk about this? I listen. I would. Why not? Yeah. There's a it's class action happen. lawsuit by the comedy. Are you you're involved in it, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. All the comedy clubs are getting together. They they want um, to um, pressure the uh, governor to, I think, to at least to treat comedy clubs as they treat indoor dining in the same way. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And to be honest with you, uh, I don't, you know, unless I'm missing something other than a person on a stage, what is the difference? I'm, I'm, I'm baffled by it. And they've also categorized us. Uh, with karaoke and adult entertainment. That's where they have us officially. Now, you missed it yesterday, but we were on a, a, a conference call with, you know, it was New York City Nightlife, and we were trying to get some answers from them, and, you know, they're playing it off on the state. Uh, the state assemblyman, actually, Janaris, who's been a champion for us, basically, he said, listen, let's let's cut the nonsense it's all on Cuomo's desk. We, we, we have submitted a proposal of how we would reopen and it's sitting on his desk and he's just not moving on it, you know? And I basically, after yesterday's conference call, I said to the other club owners, I said, listen, uh, you know, we're getting uh, thrown back and forth between the state and the city and the state and the city and they're blaming each other. The bottom line is, you know, without any pressure, I don't think they're going to open us. You know, the governor is very set on these numbers, uh, even though in New Jersey they just announced that there's no, even though they have a slightly increasing COVID rate, they don't have any reason to believe uh, that it's because of indoor dining, which has been going on in that state, I think now, for a couple of months. And, and New York has not had any outbreaks in restaurants in Nassau County or Suffolk County or or. Westchester County and counties going north. Uh, it's all coming from college campuses when their kids are coming back to college or, or certain uh, religious communities or private house parties that people were having in the summer. You know, I just dodged a bullet. You know, uh, I was supposed to have dinner with someone Saturday night that's basically been in their apartment for the last six months. And they had to cancel. They called us to cancel this morning. The guy is end-stage Parkinson's, the husband. And they found out that their housekeeper uh, was tested positive for COVID. So they were exposed to the housekeeper. So now they've got to get tests. Now, if that mm -hmm. person, you know, didn't find out in time and we met them on Saturday, then I would have been exposed to them who were exposed to COVID. And then who knows what could have happened. Were you so, going to meet them inside or outside, though? What was that? Were you going to meet them? Oh, we were going to go uh, at my building on the beach. We were just going to go right on the beach and just hang out six feet apart. So we probably would have been okay, you know, because they were very paranoid because they've got two people, you know, I mean, the husband, neither of them could be exposed because then the husband would get exposed and he can't. And my wife has COPD and asthma. And uh, basically, I'm a fat tub of lard and you know, uh, uh, high blood pressure. So, you know, I've got to be careful. So let, let's, let's play devil's advocate from the governor's point of view. Sure. From the governor's point of view, he, what if he says, look, 
uh, we're going into the winter now, and it's just not practical to expect everybody to stay home another winter. That's not going to happen. So we're going to have to give them something, and people have to eat. So let's give them some place to eat, because that actually is a necessity. Every, every person that goes out into, into an uh, indoor place increases the risk in some way. Why should we have comedy clubs or movies or whatever it is when um, that's really not essential? What we want to do is, is keep it to a minimum rather than be forced to go to the maximum simply because we're opening it a little bit. And we, and we, and we, why should that be? But that, that, just to, just to counter your point, I mean, yeah. you know, um, it's, it, it's not really a necessity. You can have, I mean, food is a necessity, but is indoor dining a necessity? You can do takeout. Well, you're going to, you're going to have to have some, what I'm saying is that something's got to give. People are not going to just be holed up in their apartment all winter again. That, that you will have um, real resistance from the, the citizenry. People are really going to object. They're going to, they're going to demand something that they're allowed to do, I think. So the governor says, all right, we're going to let you go in small groups to restaurants. We're not going to let you go to a nightclub where there's, uh, you know, people are up against each other and everybody's leaving at the same time and um, performers. And it's just, not, it's just not worth the risk. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think personally the governor is in a real tight spot. You have now gone seven months with very limited payroll money coming into the city and state coffers because a lot of people are not working or a lot of, you know, a lot of people have left uh, New York. So they have very decreased revenue coming in from a payroll perspective. I know a lot of people that are landlords now, you know, look at the position that landlords are in. They, they cannot evict. Now commercial evictions have been pushed back to January. God knows where they pushed back the residential. So, you know, landlords are, are, are crying that they're choking. So I guarantee, I think this is a property tax due in November. Um, uh, November 1 is a tax, uh, property taxes due. And I think a lot of people are going to have a hard time, especially the smaller landlords who are not collecting their rents are going to have trouble with that. So that's going to affect the bottom line. And, and sales tax. Noam, you've got to know, uh, and I know, especially from Broadway, that I was sending a monthly, uh, I wasn't doing it quarterly, I had to send them monthly sales tax figures. Now, if I add up what I haven't paid in seven months of not doing business in sales tax, multiply that all over the city, God knows what a nightmare that would be. So the, the revenues, uh, you know, my, my gut feeling is the state is doing a Hail Mary. They are praying that Biden gets elected president, that they, they take the Senate, and they'll get a bailout. That's why Pelosi has been fighting so hard for the blue state bailouts in these, in these uh, stimulus negotiations, because I believe New York's got, I mean, I, I don't see how they have any money. So wouldn't, wouldn't it be make sense then to, rather than getting everybody open, um, to give us, you know, like there, there was a save our stages thing, whatever was going around, you know, give the, the, the show business places some sort of a bailout because Al, can you make money on 25% capacity? I don't think so. No, uh, you can't make any you money. Know. You're going to lose well, more I, money. I talked to a lot of restaurateurs that told me 
they're not even opening at 25 percent they're they're hoping that november 1st comes with the numbers reduced and they'll they're they were supposedly promised if the numbers are down that they'll be able to get 50 percent november one so you know i think that's what they're hoping for and then there they might figure out something but no, i'll tell you i opened up in the in the olive tree and, uh, and I think I can say it out loud. The, the main reason I'm open, because we're losing way more money now that we're open than when we were closed. Um, but, you know, the comedians all come and hang out there. And I was just very scared that if, if it went on for months and the comedians got in the habit of hanging out somewhere else, that, uh, that, that I wouldn't be able, you know, that habit would, would stay after. So I, just, I can't take that risk. So I keep the place open essentially as a central location for the comedians to come hang. The clubhouse. The clubhouse. And I mean, on top of that, comedians, you know, some of them eat and drink for free, some for half price. So, so it's, it's a financial disaster. But I feel like I got to do it because I, I have to protect, I have to play the long game. I have to protect my, my most important asset, which sure. is comedian relationships. But I don't, like, so I, but, but all the comedy clubs are suing to be open at 25% capacity. I'm like, what, are they, what do they want to be open at 25% capacity for? I don't even well, get it. So I, I do, I must say, I disagree with a couple of the people in our group who were very heavily as part of all of this pushing, you know, the outdoor thing. And like, it, it was about a month ago, they were pushing it. And I said, why confuse the issue outdoors, indoors, because outdoors is going to be non-existent in two or three weeks from now. So we really got to, whatever we're fighting for has to be you know, indoors uh, and, and the ability to do it and, and at least get the chance to do that. You know, now what's frustrating the hell out of me is there is a club that I won't mention the name that is open. Their website is clearly selling tickets to stand-up comedy shows. And now they've been doing it since September 30th. So we're three weeks into this. They're operating and it's really disturbing me because they're, we're, we're being good players now going on eight months. And these folks are opening up. And not only are they opening up, they're, they're starting to get bold about it. They're approaching people that have been producing shows in my venues for years and trying to get them to. And listen, I get it with comics. They're going to want to go wherever they can make money or producers, the same thing. So I'm sitting here like a schmuck, you know, trying to obey the law. These guys are open, full, full. Oh, what a full capacity? No, they're opening. I, I listen. I don't know the particulars, but I think I guess at twenty five percent capacity or whatever. They're tr they're trying to follow the restaurant model. They're claiming they're a restaurant, and all they serve is nachos. I think you know, or popcorn. I don't. Even, I don't even think they have a kitchen. So I think it's meaningless. Let them do it. It's. I mean. It's, it's, how many people are we talking about? 20 people? I mean, I don't know which room it is, but 30 people? Yeah, it might be, you know, but. Nothing. It's nothing. Well, I, listen, it, it just kind of bothers me, you know, but, but that's just the competitive nature in me, I suppose. But um, it, it, um, it's a, it's a shit show. I mean, I, I really feel it is. I feel, I also, you know, again, this is strictly rumor, but it could very well I was told that there's a running feud between the governor and Schumer, Chuck Schumer, and that when Schumer made that whole hullabaloo uh, a couple of weeks ago. To tell and, people, and, people don't know what you're referring to. Uh, well, the governor, uh, um, uh, Senator Schumer, 
came to a uh, comedy club, Gotham Comedy Club, had a big press conference. I think Jerry Seinfeld was there for that one. And just, you know, said, look, we need to open the clubs. We're going to do legislation on a federal level to get the, the, the comedy clubs and, and other entertainment venues money. And, you know, he made a, you know, it was a Sunday morning usual press conference he does and made a big deal about it. And I don't know, somehow I think that maybe this irked the governor. I don't know. You know, I'm just like, there's got to be a reason why, you know, uh, one of the things we were told yesterday at this is that it's the State Department of Health that's putting the ideas in the governor's ear and uh, that, that comedy clubs are unsafe for some reason. And I, I just don't completely understand it. But, uh, and maybe I'm biased because I have a comedy club. But uh, No, I mean, you uh, were saying that, uh, you know, uh, you were playing devil's advocate and saying, well, we just, we, we're trying to minimize it because people at least need some outlet to go out. Uh, if that's the case, well, then why don't they say that? What they're saying is that comedy clubs are inherently more dangerous. So do you believe that to be the case? No, not comedy clubs are not inherent. Well, I mean, there is a time when the show ends, if you're going to have shows like that, where everybody gets up at the same time, and it'd be hard to keep people distance as they're exiting. I don't know, but I don't even know if that has anything to do with the thinking. Entrance and exit um, in, in a, at a, at a set time is a challenge as opposed to restaurants where everything is pretty much staggered, right? Other than that, no, on the contrary, at comedy clubs, people are not talking at all in the audience. And if you have one comedian who's talking maybe behind a plexi stage, like we had built in the olive tree, you know, um, that sounds like it's probably safer than multiple, com multiple, a room with many, many people talking at the same time. And laughter projects a certain amount of viruses, which, which may be the case, I don't know. But well, well, Al, would, Al wouldn't have to worry about that. <laughs> wouldn't everybody couldn't everybody in the audience wear a mask though you could do that you'd have yeah. to police that of course but well sure but i mean you could police that and then you could also have staggered entrance and exit you could do it like the airlines you know you'd have yeah, i mean i, I doubt about, I, I go ahead Al, i'm sorry talking about airlines i i came down here uh um to florida and they're carrying on about comedy clubs. There were 200 people uh, on this flight. I, I just took advantage of the fact that the is a little cheaper uh, than it's ever been to go first class. So I just said, let's go first class, Carolyn. I don't want to be sitting with someone, you know, right next to us on top of us. But how do you justify putting 200 people into a plane, you know, in close quarters like that? And then tell me I can't open my comedy club, you know, at, at Greenwich, which is 50, you know, 25% capacity is oh, 15 well, seats. You, you, again, you, you justify it. it. It's very complex. You know, I don't think you can simply lay out a few principles and then just apply them across the board. I think that the reality of the airline industry is that that it's so important that we're going to allow a little bit more risk in airlines and make up for that with a little bit less risk by closing the comedy clubs because certain things are indeed more essential and you hope that the um, aggregate risk that you decide to take when you, when you put it all in the pot uh, keeps you at below or around 1% in your testing numbers 
uh, until the vaccine comes along. So, so as, and as part of that strategy, I do kind of understand like, well, yeah, I mean, people have to fly. People have to get around. The airlines can't, airlines can't fly. That would be essential to our economy. I get that. If that were the strategy, they should say, look, we, we need the airlines. Sorry, comedy clubs, you're not essential, but they're not saying that. Um, so either that's- Well, I think the governor has said that once or twice, that he just doesn't see us as being essential. But you know, there, there's, a, there's a, another side to all of this, and that is, you know, people, uh, my employees, uh, uh, um, and small businesses, look, I'm, I'm 62, so I'm closer to the end of my reign where my kids will hopefully take over. So I'm okay. I'll survive, you know, but there are small businesses and even comedy clubs that people just put everything they had into this and and their partners, everything they had into it, whatever. And they're really feeling a lot of pain right now. And, you know, you multiply that all over the city, but, you know, the people that are just being destroyed and, and, and people that bought properties and and whatever, because they had faith in in the city and, and then they're getting crushed. And not only that, at the end of the day, the economy here is we're heading, we're heading for either, either we got to get a bailout, which is not going to happen if one side wins or um, uh, the other side's got to win and is going to bail us out. But if the other side that doesn't want the bailout wins, we're heading for financial Armageddon which, which unless we open. Want the bailout? Which, huh? Which side does not want the bailout? Oh, I'm pretty sure the Republicans, if they, if they get control or keep control of the Senate, and if the president is reelected, he's going to give a big FU to New York. He, he's yeah. not going to, he's not going to think twice about it. And then I, I suspect you might see things start to open up, or there's going to be a bankruptcy. What what choice do they have? Do you do you are you in accord with that uh, prediction? If if Trump gets reelected and uh, the Republicans stay in control, that they're going to say "fuck you" to New York? No, that's not my gut instinct. But uh, but I don't. But I don't feel strongly about it. Al, Al could t- could certainly be right. I think that whoever wins another bailout is coming because um, Trump doesn't give a shit about spending money. And Why uh, it come he, he, he wants he wants the economy to roar back. And the the thing is that when you start printing a lot of money and giving it out, the consequences are down the road, right? And Trump oh, doesn't yeah. give a shit about that. Yes. So I, I think he will, listen, I think he, he's wanted, he, he offered a, a bailout now. You know, they're, they're, they're bickering between them. But it's not like Trump said, I think Trump ordered, offered $1.8 trillion or something. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, there's real they're, money being well, offered. They're $400 billion apart, I think. Yeah, and uh, it's mind boggling that they haven't reached that deal unless someone really deep down doesn't want, want the deal. I don't well, my know. Gut, my gut tells me kind of that, this is not a knock on her, even though it is a knock on her, but that's not what's leading me there, is that Nancy, Nancy Pelosi would think that the bailout coming now would help Trump in the presidential election. I agree. And I, I agree. think, you know, so he could say, look, you know, and Trump thinks that the bailout now would help him in the presidential election. Yeah. So, I, so I think she's, resist, she, she's, she's finding a way to resist it, which is kind of reprehensible because people are really suffering. But that's the way these fucking politicians are, and I don't want to put it on her because both sides, in my opinion, are exactly the same. Exactly. Al Noam was very upset when Dangerfields closed. Oh, terrible! Because uh, he felt that he that 
small business men are being left out to dry. I don't know. Well, he, he's, he's right. You know, I mean, uh, Dangerfield, I think, had some issues already, and it was really kind of teetering. But I think, you know, it, it gets down to a club-by-club situation, you know? I mean, um, Dangerfield's the owner was in his late 80s. So, I mean, you know, does he need this aggravation anymore? What what was business? He, he probably looked at the landscape and said, you know, what, what am I doing here? You know, the governor's going to open me at, at 25%. Maybe in six months I'll be 50%, you know. Uh, what am I doing here? It's just easier for me to close it, end it. It was a great run. I'm do I did okay. You know, other co other owners, you know, just put everything they got into their clubs, and they're going to be really hurt. You know, and they're still maybe in their four, you know forty years old or forty two, you know, forty five, and 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 they're going, what the hell? What am I going to do now? You know, I'm I'm going to lose everything if I don't do. You know, so it all depends each situation is different others might have negotiated something with their landlords so they're okay others might have you know um um have partners with deep pockets who you know but every situation is different you know and uh that's what you know that's why i'm not sure we're done yet with the carnage in the comedy business you know danger pills and ucb might be the first two but we just don't know yeah, well, they, they really need to help. I mean, even these PPP loans for people who are interested in this stuff, they gave us significant money, well, it seemed significant at the time, two and a half months expenses, but it was, it's all conditioned on spending it on employees. And since you can't open, you can't, the money becomes not forgivable. It's ill-conceived, which I don't blame them because it, you know, things are hard to predict uh, in, prospectively, but they don't correct it. They don't rewrite it. They don't change the rule. They don't give a shit, it seems like. Well, here's the situation. I, I, I took the money to help out my employees. I gave, you know, one of my employees, and I was resistant to, you know, I took the loans. I was very resistant to do anything with it because I, you know, I don't want debt at this point in my life, you know, and, right. you know, so I, I, I was holding it. You know, and then finally, I, I had employees come to me and say, look out, I need to work, you know, and I need to do something. And I'm, I'm not making it on this, you know, little unemployment that, you know, someone on an hourly wage at a restaurant gets. So, you know, they're turning around and, you know, saying to me, well, I'm going to go here where it's open and I can make money. But, and I'm losing employees that I've had for 20 years between my two clubs. Or, and I'm saying, you know, I don't want that. So finally, I pulled the trigger and took one of the loans to pay them. So like you said, was it eight weeks we paid them for? That ran out. Now he's contacting me again. He waited three more months before he contacted me and said, look, uh, do you have any idea when we're going to open? I said, no, I really take the job, I said to him, because unless there's something drastic that happens, i.e. Uh, the lawsuit, um, you know, he had to take the job for five months and when he was taking it, I said, there's a good chance in five months, we'll probably be still in this nightmare. That's I don't really, know. It really sucks. All yeah, right, it's I one guy. It's one guy. If you're to listen to the discussions that were taking place yesterday, uh, the city representatives intimated it and the state senator just flat out said it. It's all on Cuomo's desk and it's his decision, and he doesn't seem to be budging. Yeah. 
which is bad. Yeah, but but I, I mean, I just want to say again that even though it seems like he's being harder on the comedy clubs, to me, having let restaurants open to twenty five percent, that might it, that might even be worse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it sounds like he's, he let, he he hasn't helped the restaurants at all. He's helped people because they need to go out and eat. But if you have a good takeout business, you're surviving. You know. Uh, yeah. Diners, especially right. There's always there's always some special cases, but for the most part, twenty five percent. A restaurant that does twenty five percent business goes bankrupt in, in instantly. You can't you can't survive on twenty five percent business. Yeah, I mean, listen, I I get these, I, <laughs> I get these things every day from the city about you know changes and this and regulations and things that they're doing for the restaurant industry. I've never heard such a crazy idea like this outdoor dining. They're talking like outdoor dining in New York City in the winter is going to be such a normal experience for people. I mean, you know, uh, and, and when you get the regulations and you read them, you can have certain space heaters right next to the building. But if you're going to do the, on the street, you have to have another type of space heater. You got to run the electrical in a certain way. And, and you'll provide them with blankets. I mean, what idiot is going to go out go out to eat in Manhattan, you know, wearing a blanket? You know, it's just crazy. It makes no sense. Makes no sense. Oh, is there anything else miserable we could talk about? Uh, <laughs> you, had, you had, you sent out an email. You were hopping. I don't know if you were mad or, I think you were, actually, I think you were kind of happy because the Wall Street Journal plagiarized you or something like that. Oh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about <laughs> I don't want to get anybody. Yes. Well, you, you saw it, right? Well, you, you say you, you wrote a letter to a, a, a journalist and he basically used exactly your, your so, words. So, so you know, I've, I've, you know, I, I communicate with, with various people and, and many times I've been actually, um, you could Google it, cited in the journal uh, as a source for ideas and stuff on, on the editorial page from this one guy. But this time, it could just be an oversight. He 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 pretty much uh it's not verbatim but he used keywords and and the the um argument is verbatim of what i'd written him and he didn't he didn't ref he didn't cite me at all he didn't he didn't give me any credit can I, can I just briefly uh say what your argument was uh yes yeah, sure if you get it well, right your argument was is that if if um beware people now saying that the biden emails weren't that big a deal if they weren't that big a deal, then why were they fighting tooth and nail to keep it silent? No, what, that's not quite. What I said was that it, yeah, well, quite, that, it, that it's going to be hard for them to now say that they're not that big a deal because the initial reaction that this is Russian disinformation and uh, this is a smear and blah, blah, blah. I mean, how do you smear somebody with something that's not that big a deal? Everything about the initial reaction bought into the idea that these were serious re revelations here. That's why they had to be disinformation. They had to be a smear, whatever it is. And now that you can't get out from under it, basically they're, they're, we're sure that they are real. Now they're pivoting to, oh, these emails don't say anything. Well, they didn't say anything. Then why the fuck were you freaking out? Why didn't you say they don't say anything? Why wasn't that your initial response? Move on, right? So I, I just think that, it, you know, that, that was basically the point I made. Um, I think the point is correct. I don't think it matters. I don't think anybody, I don't think, I, I think Biden's going to win. But. Can I have a counter? Oh, but, but, it's, but it gets even better because this guy, Tony, Tony Babalito, uh, that, 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 that wrote the thing today about Biden, 
I know him. By total coincidence, I know this guy. And he's the guy who got me in the door in Cellar Vegas. Just by this guy, this guy that's involved in the Trump, in the Biden, Hunter Biden email thing now, just by total coincidence, was a guy who was a friend of a friend and he introduced me to somebody uh, who helped me get into the door and Caesar this thing. So I'm, I'm one degree of separation away from uh, this major well, what, scandal. What, 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 what did, were the revelations today from this guy, Bob Alito or whatever? Yeah. And, 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 and by the way, he's, he's, he's a serious guy. I mean, I mean they're going to try to attack him. This guy is not a flake, all right? What, were the, what was the nature of the, the new revelations? That he, that, um, he witnessed Hunter coordinating with his dad, warehousing equity uh, in his for his dad without putting it in paper. That is said that his dad was always involved in Hunter's projects. He viewed it as part of the Biden legacy and stuff like that. So, I mean, and how fatal is that to the Biden campaign? You don't feel that that's, that's fatal to the Biden campaign anyway? I don't think so. I mean, yeah. it depends if it gets reported to enough people. That's the thing, you know, I think well, one of the big, yeah. I think this is all significant. Listen, we, we, we impeached the president because he was trying to look into the debunked idea that Hunter and Joe were into blah, 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 right? I mean, I, it seems to me if this laptop had come to light during the impeachment time, it would have been hard to impeach him for looking into this stuff or for pressuring Ukraine to, to give him information about this stuff, given the fact that there's a, there was so much more smoke from this laptop. So, you know, that's significant. The, the idea that all these politicians make money on their name or look the other way when their kid is making money on their name. I mean, you know, I wish it weren't so, but it's just, it's just the way it is. And I don't think anybody's going to vote for the other guy, especially not Trump, who doesn't have clean hands because of something like this. I think, it's, I think if, I, if I had to get a gun to my head and I had to say what the truth is, I would say that Biden, that Burisma paid by Hunter Biden $2 million or whatever it is, clearly for influence. And, that, and I think it's pretty clear that Joe Biden must have known about it. I think when Biden fired this prosecutor, Shokin, he had good reason to fire him. The guy was bad news, but it was also opportunistic. And he, he must have known it was going to help his son. The relationship between a father and son is extremely intimate and uh, lo loyal. I just, there's just no way that they would put a Chinese wall between themselves, not Hunter and Joe. I don't believe that. And I don't think he sacrificed the national interest in any way, but it's, you know, you technically could even be criminals. Definitely the appearance of impropriety. And I don't think anybody's going to give a shit. I think the, the, the pushback, I think people are much more outraged by the fact that the press and social media are closing ranks to protect the Bidens. I think that really does bother people. It bothers me a lot. But that's, that, that's also, uh, in, that's going to favor Trump because yes. Trump is associated with taking a stand against the media and social media as well. It, it outrages me. The, the idea that the Twitter censored a story in the New York Post because they decided it was bullshit. And then 50 former, former ex-intelligence officials write a letter saying that this is probably Russian disinformation with no facts whatsoever. I mean, you can really see how they got us into the Iraq war. <laughs> you know, jump into conclusions about WMD 
So here they do it again. 50 of them, big guys, Clapper, Brennan, write a letter saying that these emails and everything are rushing to this information. And 48 hours later, we know, actually, no, they really are his emails. So much for the Russian disinformation. And maybe the Russians, you know, had them too and were selling them. But the point is that they're true. I read Al's Facebook feed. I'm having trouble getting a bead on his political leanings. Sometimes I think he's a Trump supporter. Sometimes I think he's a Biden supporter. But I guess, I guess he just revealed that he's a Biden supporter by his, uh, his issue with the uh, bailout money. Well, it's, it's a little complicated for me. And, I, and I'll be honest about that. Um, and, and it's complicated because I have a child uh, that started gay and now she's transgendered. So I worry about that. Um, you know, I have another child that uh, suffers from epilepsy and seizures, and she's very reliant on, on um, medical uh, aid and stuff like that. So from that perspective, you could say Al Martin leans blue. On the other side of the coin, I am very concerned about... Um, a lot of the old status quo, uh, what Trump calls the swamp. Um, and, and some of that concerns me. I'm concerned about border security. I'm concerned that our military is strong. So from that perspective, I tend to lean, you know, towards Trump. So it's not an, you know, like my kid is very firmly, you know, blue and for Biden. And she can't understand why I waffle, but I waffle because I have a lot of more responsibilities than just my kid has. My kid's worried about my kid. I'm worried about myself, my wife, my kid, you know, my other kid, my businesses. So it's very complicated for me in, in certain respects. But just to get back to one point that will tie in my concern with all of this and, and, and with, with what Noam said about news media sometimes, when we were... Two days before we were forced to close uh, on, I think it was March 16th, a Monday, we were given till 9 a.m. The New York Times ran a very bad, you know, someone got one of these gotcha moments. They took a picture outside of the comedy cellar. I think it was probably five or six comedians. Just It could have been hanging out for a second, saying hello, smoking a cigarette, whatever. And the, the, the capsule was crowds of people at, at, at at comedy clubs in, in New York. And I said, this is going to be very bad. Two days, you know, the next day we were given the 50%. No, I think we were already at 50%. We were already at 50%. Right. And I, and I know for a fact that your club was at 50% and honoring that. That's because, why we had a crowd outside. Right. Well, the crowd, yeah. But it wasn't like three quarters down the block. I know for a fact that comics would tell, like I asked them, did the comedy seller go over the 50%? Let's face it, I'm going to ask. And, and every one of them said, absolutely not. But some, and this is something we got to be very concerned about when we open, because now everybody's a news reporter. Everybody's going to be, they're going to wait for that moment to take a picture of, of, of our lines outside. And, and, you know, it's not going to tell the correct picture. You know, and a lot, you know, there could be 50 people. Let's say you go 25% at the village on the, you know, 50% at the village underground. So at some point, you're going to have 100 people walking out, 100 people waiting to go in, and someone is going to snap that picture. And nobody walks out of a club and says, hey, you know, um, to be honest with you, 
uh, where are we, you know, they're having a five minute conversation where they're going next. Yeah. And it tends to create that bottleneck at the front of your place. And you could have security all day moving along people, but now you're like yelling at your customers who just spent all this money in your venue to walk down the block. Just that, we, have no, we have no authority over them once, they, once they're outside. We barely have right. authority over them when they're inside. Yeah. Um, just, by the way, it, I, it wasn't the Times. I forget what it was, but to, to their credit, if, you, if anybody has Google, they actually did change. I called them and complained and I said, listen, the crowd is out there because we're at 50% capacity. We're turning people away. And to her credit, the reporter actually changed the caption. So uh, that was very, very unusual. Because usually they tell me to go fuck myself. But by, <laughs> by the way, would, would you agree with this? Because nobody understands. Um, every business, almost every business owner feels like, to the Democrats, we are the enemy. And, yes. and this, is the, this is what, you know, this is a bottom line. Small business, not big business, not, not Google and the... And the and the big businesses with huge money that the politicians kiss their asses, the actual guy out there in his store, rolling up the gate in the morning, closing it at night, they view us as the enemy. They, always, the they assume machine. you're making money. They assume you're ripping people off. Uh, God forbid the economy is good. You're never paying enough. It, it, you know, and, and people don't understand why, like, how could you possibly vote the Republicans and Trump? Don't you know how they feel about transgender? It's like, you know, yes, but they fucking hate me. Who votes for somebody who hates them? Right. You know, when, when, I, when my kid first moved into Manhattan, someone was paying her rent in the beginning when she couldn't afford it for a year, two years, three years, subsidizing her rent, you know, paying for her college education. You know, somebody was doing that. It was me, yeah. you know, but, you know, then my kid says to me, and we've had this, like, she'll walk away from me at the table. Dad, how can you support, you know, Republicans? They're the enemy and, you know, all this other stuff. And it's complicated for me. Like I said, I, I get where she's coming from, but where am I coming from? You know. I mean, Let me give you an example of, of how, how our nice government treats us. This is a classic example. So, you know, for, for years, um, you would have straws and they would take the straw and they would hold like the top, you know, sixth of it and pull the, pull the paper down. Right. So then, and they'd fill up a pitcher with a bunch of straws with just wrappers right on top. And then we'd serve it to you with just, so apparently uh, they, they got the idea that some, this was somehow not sanitary. So it becomes a health department violation, but they never tell anybody. They never tell the restaurants, actually we've changed the rules about straws. You have to keep them in the wrappers. So what they do is they send everybody out, the health inspectors, and this is what they do. They don't just give you a violation for the fact that you have these straws, which are now have to be housed in a different manner than they've been for the last 30 years. They count how many straws and they give you a violation for each one, times that by the amount of the fine and give it to you. In other words, they look at you like a fucking, cat, you know, just as, a, as something to abuse. Like let's go, yes. and, they, and they all have their marching orders. Everybody, let's go out to the restaurants now. This is the new violation that nobody knows about. We're not going to tell them. We all got to go out on the same day because we don't want them to get wind of it so, that, and then, so they can collect our fines. And that's, yeah. and that's their strategy. And, I know, and, and, and you know, you should vote for me, Noam. You know, no, well, you know, it's tough. It's tough for me to vote for you if that's your strategy. Right. You know, it, Am it, I lying it, out? So, people people it, be rolling their eyes. Am I, am I making something up? No, you're not making anything up. I'll give you another one. They, they, they tell us, 
they tell me, I'm a night business, right? I don't get open most of the time, unless it's Saturday and we're doing some afternoon shows. But, you know, most of the time we're open at night. I don't get there. My people don't get there till five, six o'clock. If someone is walking down the block and is drinking a cup of coffee and throw a Dunkin' Donuts, it says Dunkin' Donuts on it or Starbucks, they throw it on the floor in front of my club at 1.30 in the afternoon and uh, a sanitation inspector walks by, I get a summons for that. And they tell me, you're responsible to keep your front area clean. So what am I supposed to bring someone in five hours a day at the new minimum wage, which they raise now, right? It's so great. it's like, I'm supposed to spend $100 a day for someone just to sweep the streets, you know, and, and, and you know, there's 25000 a year right off the bat. You it's know? madness. And, and, and of course, when there's a city trash can on the corner, it's always overflowing. Over, yeah. Always, always, always. And that, it's, it's, you know. Great point. Yes, yes. It's great. It's great. You get health department inspectors that come in, and they all have a different uh, stuff they're looking for. Now, I'm blessed with two clubs, so I know when there's a mandate coming from somewhere because both clubs get hit with suddenly the new thing that they're looking for, like you say, they don't tell us about. I've had inspectors come in. And these guys will pull 50 cases of beer out from against the wall. And suddenly, supposedly, even though we're always cleaning, I always have the same, you know, uh, 62 pounds of excretia that winds up getting dismissed later on. But it's insane. Yeah. Go ahead, Mariel. The two of you are kvetching so fucking much for like a fucking hour. You guys get to do like the coolest thing in the entire world. No, you get, you comedians get to do the coolest thing. Yeah, but you guys, and Al is a comedian also, but you guys not only create it, but like you get to be part of this magic and you're sitting here fucking going on about the bar and the glasses and the this and the that. I mean, can we pull out a little bit here? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> because that's sort of our reality. I mean, we, we love, I mean, I can't speak for Noma. I'm assuming because he has certainly the greatest comedy club in the world and, and well known for it. I mean, that's kind of you well, to say. It's the truth. So, I mean, you know, yes, there's a fun time to it. There's, there's always a magic when I'm at my clubs and, and a star comes in and someone comes in to work out their material, uh, you know, or when I'm standing at the door of a show that I've helped book and people come out and say, what an awesome show it is. Or when I come to the club and I see a long line down the block, uh, I feel like uh, those are the fun moments. I've done something right. Uh, but when, when you get that, you know, on a Tuesday night at 11 o'clock at night, a, a health of, like we stop serving food and we close the light and we're ready to throw out the garbage and the inspector comes in and says, oh, you have food here that's not heated. Well, we're closing in, in an hour, 45, we stopped selling food. And that and part is interesting, but I feel like we might have to do a part two where, <laughs> you know, you guys at least fucking address the other stuff. Like, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I don't necessarily agree that Noam is, loves uh, the comedy world, at least not as much as Al does, because I think Noam loves the music world and his family and uh, and 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 debating. 
He loves the debating with <laughs> his intellectual friends. I don't know that he. Well, loves I think that's problem. something he got from his dad. His dad was uh, famous for that at the at the um, uh, uh, Olive Tree. Yeah, but that's yes. why I don't think Noam. If a celebrity comes down, it gets all that titillated by that. I don't know, Noam. Am I right? Well, I'm. I'm. I. I'm happy about it because I know it's great for the club, and I and I'm, I'm proud of it. I, I get nervous, and I and I try to. I mean, it's, I think I'm fortunate because I really don't want to go sit with them, which I think is the way a lot of owners go wrong. Because uh, I just give them their space. I make sure somebody gets them a drink, and I don't know what the right answer is. I'm not. I'm. I don't know what the right answer to that is, Dan. I'm. I'm somewhere in the middle. I. I, I definitely know that it's very, very important to the business and I'm very, very happy when they come in and, and I try to make sure that they keep coming. But no, I don't, I don't look forward to like hanging out with the celebrities unless it's one of them who I'm I really knew. Like, I, like, like John, when John Stewart comes in, I'm actually ha really happy to see him because he started out there. Like, like I knew him for so long before he was famous, it's comfortable for me. But some of them who I didn't know very well before they were famous, or, it's it's a little awkward for me. I get that. I'm just talking about that. the celebrities, though. Like, but like what you just said is that like you have somebody who comes to your club every night. They're working there, and then they become like really successful. I mean, that's got to be. Listen, Perry, I'm 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 as fortunate as as anybody can be. I'm not complaining about the. the oh, you could have fooled me for no, that. No, let me. Matter. I'm not complaining about the seller. Or I'm not. I'm not unhappy with the seller. I we're talking about politics. And I'm and I'm saying that the attitude of a city which is fueled by small businesses, people who risk everything to fulfill a dream and create something, 100%. who employ I employ 120 people and have for 30 years millions and millions and millions of dollars in income that I paid out to people, um, and and you and still you feel like the party of the left just looks at you to try to catch you doing something. And maybe you, uh, maybe, maybe you fired somebody of the wrong race and maybe, maybe you look funny at somebody who is gay. And like, it's just like, with none of this happens, of course. Maybe you, now it's, maybe you used the wrong word. And, and they literally, get, they're writing laws about that now, you know? And That's just to be clear, I don't want anybody treating anybody badly on their race or their sexual, I mean, obviously, but the, the fact is that they're just trying to catch us doing something all the time. And I agree. It's, it's, it's very disheartening. It, it's, it, it's true. When, when I was a kid, my father had a great time. He spent minimal time every week on compliance, minimal time worrying about anything that had to do with the law. He went in and ran his business basically the way he wanted. He yelled and screamed, and he was very, very fair always. We spend, I don't know, two-thirds of our week now worrying about government top-down issues, compliance, defensive, uh, meetings with the accountant, meetings with a lawyer. You can't do this. When COVID started, I talked about it. I have a, I have a family, uh, a cook who's, who has a lot of kids. They just had a kid. I want to lend them some money. You can't lend them any money because if another employee finds out that you lent them money, they could call it discrimination. But whether, you know, I mean, it's like everywhere. Well, I want, I want the employees to, I want to get, put thermometers out before they close down so they can take their own temperature. You can't do that because HIPAA rules, they could sue you. An employee could sue you for putting the thermometers out. You know, that's what I spent my time doing. 
It was so absurd. No, I think there's, there's, you're not going to do it. You're not going to huh? do it. But there's a best-selling book in here somewhere, like a John Stossel kind of ranting uh, book about, you know, government crushing small business, and you could go on all the TV shows and sell it. Uh, but yeah. you're not going to do it. We, I have to even, we literally stayed open four days longer. I wanted to close the comedy cellar. I thought it wasn't safe. We had to stay open for four days longer until the city finally closed us because my legal advice told me that if I closed in order to be safe, I could get in trouble for that because you have to, you have to, have, you have to give certain advance notices and warn, warn notices or whatever it is that if you don't, if you don't jump through the hoops of closing properly, you could, you could be, you could have a fine of like, I don't know, $150 per employee, you know, $10,000. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to I, stay open. It's nuts. I get it. I get it entirely. I mean, this all sounds incredibly tedious, but that wasn't my question. What's my What's your question? You didn't have a question. You just said they should stop complaining. That's not a question. I, they said they should stop complaining and talk about like the magic of it, and no one launched into well, like, we, we don't, okay. Parallel. Let me. I put it, a, a great man once said, "The grass is always greener on the other side." All right, that's just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not complaining. I I knock on wood every day about how lucky I am. I mean. I'm, I'm suffering uh, through this lockdown, but while other people are losing everything. I wish my family still eats the way we always did. We hang out and, um, and I'm very, very blessed and fortunate. And, you know, I never lose, I never lose sight of that. Well, um, it's gotta be weighing on you though, not to get to see Dan Natterman in person and to go out and to, and to treat him to steak dinners every now and again. I do, oh, I do miss that. I do miss Make up for that when the COVID is over, if it's, if it's ever over. If you would just get a test, you can come visit. I did have a test. I got a test, as a matter of fact, but... I just no, you have to get a test that day and go from the testing place to the house. Oh, okay. At the test, but I got one and like, it was unpleasant. I don't want to do it all the time, you know, but... Uh, because I, I, I uh, you know, my, my parents are elderly, so I wanted to um, get a test, you know, before I... Uh, went to see them, but uh, it's not something I want to do all the time. And I, and I, I will, Perry, you're right. I did get invited, you know, when we got invited out to the Chappelle's thing in Ohio, which I was reluctant to go to because- Oh all my God. That, 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 was, that was fun. That was, you know, that was something. That was a nice part of the thing. But, and Dan's right though, I'd, I'd rather be playing music. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, do we want to have a break? I got to get something to eat and then go watch the debate. So now might be- Oh shit, what time is the debate? 9 p.m. Oh. So, uh, but give you a little time to get ready. So I think now's a good time. Now, I thought this was a good discussion. Anybody that's certainly um, interested in the nuts and bolts of the comedy business would certainly find it interesting. And I, I, think, I think anybody that's interested in how businesses are run would find it interesting. But um, Where can Al tell us, where can we find your book? Yes, did it on a dare. How I built a comedy empire in 30 short years. I'm going to write a sequel, How COVID Ruined It, in seven months. <laughs> I was, I was, I've, been, I've been watching for most of those 30 years. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Yes, uh, I, remember, I remember Dan Natterman as a rookie. And, uh, what sweet, was he like? He was like pretty else, much the same guy. He thought he was going to make it in two years, but, you know. Um, in any case, uh, you can reach us for comments, suggestions, and anything else at uh, uh, 
podcast at comedycellar.com. And I feel like we haven't been getting a lot of emails. You guys, yeah, I think we haven't been announcing the, we haven't been announcing it lately. We announced it, but people are either you're not sending it to us or, or no, I haven't gotten it. You had announced it at the top of the show. Not everybody hangs on to the very, very end. Well, we'll do that next time. Uh, and Perielle runs our Instagram account. At Live from the Table. By the way, we're, we're, tr we're trying to organize this uh, transgender uh, show, right? With uh, various people that we know that are transgender. Maybe Al would come on too to give a parent's perspective because that's actually quite interesting. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's actually not a transgender show. We just have a couple of trans friends who are joining us on different shows. They're not. Right, but you, you would think we were, we're also trying to, we were trying to have one. We to, could do that. To discuss it, yeah, if we can do it. We, we're, tr we're trying to organize it, but at the same time, not, um, not offend anybody uh, by the, the idea that uh, we're treating it as an oddity or something, which we're not. But it's, it's, it's in the news, and it's very interesting, especially with J.K. Rowling's and, and all, all sorts of issues. And a roundtable is always interesting. But a parent... That's also an interesting perspective, you know. I yeah, have a good. My kids come out twice. Came out at thirteen as gay, and like at twenty-seven or twenty-eight as transgendered. So he never really was gay. If if you if you follow the logic, if he was a woman, he wasn't gay, but he thought he was, or that's how he was. Well, I freaked her out uh, maybe about a year or two ago when I my mind started thinking, and I said, "So, Dina, you're um, a." Man, uh, a woman trapped in a man's body, uh, but you like men, right? Yes. So when you make that transfer, are you still going to like men? Yes. So you're going to be a woman that likes men. You're straight. And like, she, she couldn't understand that concept for a minute. You know, it's like, it was freaking her out. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And I'm sure you have a, uh, you had a road to travel to get used to that. Oh yeah. yeah. And, um, but I do notice, just as uh, before we go, that you know, I know I know a few transgender people, and that um, you know, they're pretty easygoing about it. Like you, you'd think that like when people get very, very offended when somebody misspeaks or whatever it is. But the truth is, that's usually people on their behalf. My, you know, people make very, jokes. You know, you're very right about that. I can remember one one day at Katz's Deli in Manhattan. I was there with my kid, and Katz's has a lot of tourists from the Midwest. So I'm sitting there with my daughter and, and people are looking at her and it's like freaking me out. And, and like, she was calm, nothing, it didn't bother her at all. She has very thick skin about it. And like, when she wasn't looking for a second, I turned around and I said, you know, people from New York are not against taking a fork and sticking it in people's eyeballs, you know? <laughs> and she's like, Sounds like you're a pastrami and mayonnaise sandwich, you know. <laughs> it sounds like you're a good, loving dad, and your daughter is is very lucky because uh, there's some horror stories about the way parents. Oh yes, oh yes. Yeah. I made the decision a long. Well, maybe I'll keep it for the next show, but yeah. yeah. The, the, yeah. No, say say the say what you were gonna say. No, I made the decision a long time ago. My my daughter is a human being. She's is the way she is, and I either lose her or accept her. And it's I beautiful. Yeah. And I accept her. I came to that with my wife, uh, uh, but <laughs> I, I, I thought losing her was okay. Now I'm not sure <laughs> my daughter accepts me. You know, <laughs> yeah, you're a little much. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Have a good hey, debate. Hey, take care. Bye bye.